you know, just like physical illness, mental illness can be overcome. We just got to inspire people to believe that. The mental health community and the firearms industry have spent way too much time running parallel to each other without communicating. It's time we change the narrative and destroy the stigma that we both face. Walk the Talk America presents Guns and Mental Health, a podcast for firearms owners, clinicians, and the curious public. Gentlemen, welcome back to Walk the Talk America's podcast called Guns and Mental Health. Jesse Lott, hello. Hey, Dick. Hi, Mike. Michael. Hey, Dixie. Our intros are always so awkward, aren't they? Yeah, they are. We. <laughs> I love it. It's kind of like how I end the show. Usually, like on my own podcast, it's so clunky. <laughs> I think it's going to become our thing. It's got to be a painful intro. <laughs> has to, has to. Uh, well, uh, I guess we'll we'll start with our sponsor because we're terrible at mentioning our sponsor because we're just not that good at hosting. Apparently, Arms Corps is uh, one of our big supporters, and um, we are gaining more support uh, weekly from the industry and from people all across the nation who are uh, really invested in what we're doing. So, big shout out to Arms Corps for making this possible. Um, letting us do what we do. And then uh, I got to give credit to my own company, Zephyr Wellness, uh, for being the the first to sign on and partner with Walk Talk America as a mental health outpatient facility. We hope to get more partners along the way too. So if you're in a community somewhere across the country and you are a clinician uh, or you work at an agency or you run an agency that you know, finds value in what we're doing, you know, destigmatizing mental illness and mental health treatment for the firearms owning community, uh, as well as the flip side, you know, destigmatizing firearms for the mental health community, please contact us. We would love to have you on board distributing our literature to get people in so that they don't have to fear uh, what we, what it is that we do as clinicians. And that's actually why we have Jesse on. Jesse's a, a longtime friend. We went to graduate school together. He works at Zephyr with me. He's our clinical director in the Sparks office. Um, he's done a lot and I'll let him give his verbal resume. But um, I think the, the whole point of what we're doing is to try to bring these these communities together so that people stop dying. But not more than that, right? It's not just suicide prevention. We want We want you not merely to continue living, but to thrive while living. Like just saving lives isn't good enough if you're living miserably. So, um, mental health care can certainly help in that too. So, Jesse, explain to us who you are and why you're here and what your passions are and if you like long walks on the beach and moonlight and all that. Poetry. Don't forget poetry. about poetry. Oh, of course. Uh, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm Jesse Lott, as Jake mentioned. Um, I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist in, uh, in Nevada. Um, I work with Jake. Um, I have been doing this for, this is my 15th year as a clinician. Um, I'm a husband and a father of two and a life uh, long gun owner. I uh, was uh, born and raised in, in Utah, raised as a Catholic kid. <clears throat> um, my grandfather was a World War II vet. He was a gun guy and he got me and my cousin into into the uh, 
firearm sporting world pretty early, uh, shooting, fishing, that kind of thing. He uh, was was the one that I credit as far as um, getting me into shooting. Um, a lot of focus on respecting the gun, uh, responsible use, that kind of thing. Uh, he got me my first real firearm. It was a rifle, uh, Marlin 22. I was probably, I don't know, nine, nine, ten years old. Um, my first, <laughs> I got a, a Red Rider BB gun. I was probably like seven. You shoot uh, your eye first. out, kid. I just managed to not shoot my eye out. Uh, let's see. Um, <clears throat> I come from a bit of a blended background. Uh, there's a firearms world culture there. Uh, my mom, uh, she worked in the mental health field and I was exposed to, to that pretty early on. Um, so I, I, I guess I would say that I'm fortunate in the sense that, uh, both the gun culture and the mental health culture was normalized for me pretty, pretty early on. So, um, yeah, came to Nevada in 97, uh, finished my undergrad and uh, graduate studies at UNR. Jake, as you mentioned, that's where we met. And uh, now I'm working, working for you. Yeah, that's awesome. The, it's interesting, though, that you say, um, okay, so I always have this joke. And when I, I, I describe Jake like this and guys like Richard Egan from Nevada Coalition of Suicide Prevention. You guys are like werewolves that can turn into vampires. You, you know about mental health, but you're also pro 2A and in gun culture. Um, and you kind of walk this earth being able to, to understand both sides and see the issues. So that's, that's pretty cool. Um, as of recently, mental health and firearms have kind of mixed. We, we've, we've been working as an industry, the firearms industry, to prevent suicide and raise awareness. But ha- like coming up, have you, had you thought of that? Like did, did those things cross your mind growing up like that? No, man, it's, that's a really good question. And it was, it wasn't until really recently <clears throat> and, you know, get to give you credit, the really kind of solidifying of like, Oh my God, you're this whole bridge or this gap that, that isn't bridged. And it's like, it's so apparent now. And it's, it's for me, it wasn't as obvious until, um, you know, graduate school and that kind of thing. And, uh, you, you kind of notice the difference in cultures when you go to school and the people who are in the industry, the mental health industry. And I think Jake and I were kind of minorities in that sense of being, you know, gun owners and <clears throat> political perspectives, but no, uh, it wasn't ever really kind of seen. I, I, I didn't see the, the division there until it really starts getting pointed out. And uh, it's unfortunate. Why, why is there a division um, in terms of, I mean, I could answer it for the firearms industry, but I can't, I don't know why that is. Uh, usually they tend to go left to center when it comes to the mental health community. Why is that? Uh, I mean, I could speculate. I think that um, the people who tend to want to go into this, into this line of work, you know, they're, they're they've got a, a, a passion for helping people. Um, that doesn't necessarily exclude anybody on, you know, the right of center. Or, or right or anything like that, but it's a healing field. And I think that it's, it's a little more uh, geared toward people who are probably a little bit more on the left side uh, of the spectrum. And obviously if that's kind of your, your bend, there's probably less likely that you're going to be gravitating toward the firearm industry. So. Yeah. I think for me, um, 
I, I've asked I've asked that question. I don't have an answer, which is very bizarre because I try to have as much as many well formed opinions on things that are mysterious as I can, so that I can make sense of them, even if I don't understand them. And and I I don't have an answer other than simply to say that people who are who tend to be soft hearted tend to be left of center politically because they give more than they take. And people who are right of center tend to be stronger in the capitalist drive. They want to accumulate wealth and, you know, that sort of thing. And, and, and I don't know why that's the case, because that makes no damn sense to me, why they can't both live in the same world. I certainly live in both worlds. I give freely. Uh, I, I don't need the government telling me to do it, but I give a lot. Like way, way, a lot, a lot, a lot. Resources, time, money, talents. Um, and I I mean, I, I guess I could consider myself more conservative, but really I'm more libertarian than anything. I just, I just believe in people's individual ability to choose for themselves and take personal responsibility. And part of that responsibility is to, to give away, you know, what you have. Cause I also have a spiritual belief that says none of this is mine anyway. It's all, it all comes from God and it just flows through me. So uh, I think it'd be very selfish to hoard it thinking that somehow I, I'm responsible for for keeping it or that I made it myself. So I don't know. But what I do know is that in the clinical community, we get very rigid despite our, um, our explanation to the public that we're very non-attached and that we're lifelong learners and we're always evolving and we're always educating ourselves. We really aren't. We find our bailiwicks and then we stick to them and we get really good at them for the most part. You know, if you, if you're really good at eating disorders, you do eating disorders, but then, um, but then there's this thing where it's like, you don't, you don't really deviate either. So I don't see a lot of really comprehensive, integrated, uh, practitioners. People talk like they are, uh, but, the, but then you get right down to it and you start digging in and, and some people get really defensive when you say, Hey, explain to me about, uh, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, for example, to somebody who, who doesn't work with children, they don't even have an opinion. And it's weird. It's like, how could you not at least have an opinion about how that manifests or what you would do to treat it? Uh, it's like, well, I don't work with kids. Well, that's, that's not really an excuse. Like, are you going to turn away a kid if they come to you? And unfortunately, like Jesse was alluding, when we went to school together, that was one of the things we were taught was, if you don't do it, refer out. It's like, that's one of the most damaging things you could do to a potential client. So if a potential client comes in and they're like, Hey, I'm, I'm a law enforcement. I'm a gun owner. I don't want to admit to you that I have, you know, problems, but my department's making me come here. Uh, you're going to have a whole bunch of people who have gotten really rigid on the gun on the gun thing and go, I'm sorry, I don't understand that. You're going to have to go see somebody else. It's like you're going to turn away this person who's seeking help because you yourself refuse to evolve. Like that's ridiculous. And that's why we teach our class with, you know, walk, talk America. But I don't know. I could soapbox about that for, for days. Oh, Jesse, I have a question for you because you, when you say like, I grew up around guns, um, everybody that is listening to this, that's in the industry, the firearms industry, they, they can kind of figure out what that means. Right. To me, I know what that means. You probably went out, your grandfather took you hunting, all these stuff, right. All these things that are, are, you know, everyone has the visualization of when they're like, I grew up around guns. Uh, what does it mean to grow up with a mother who, uh, worked in mental health? Like, what does that mean for, for everyone who can't, cause I don't even know what that means. That That's a very, because of broad statement, but that's kind of fascinating to me. Sure. Yeah. It was, um, like I said, she wasn't a clinician, but, uh, you know, this was back in the day when, you know, you could take your kid to work kind of thing. And 
probably couldn't get away with it these days. But uh, I mean, I had, I had, I was, it was exposure. I had exposure to it and just kind of seeing the, the, the spectrum of the human experience. Um, and this is an institution. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, seeing these folks. uh, Yeah. I mean, these are all, these are all nonviolent folks. Um, But seeing this, this broad spectrum of, of the human experience. And uh, like I said, it was just kind of a normalization. It wasn't, it wasn't, it became not weird. It became not strange. And I think for me, it, it, it kind of helped, helped kind of formulate a, a lack of surprise to me about what somebody might go through, <clears throat> kind of helped cultivate a little bit more of a, of a curiosity that I would, I would run into these kind of things. And, um, you know, her coworkers, and obviously they became really good friends and she did this for at least a decade. And I got really close with some of the, some of these folks and doctors and, you know, all the way from doctors to techs, you know, these folks who would work in the, in the, in the field, you know, and they were just, they were just good people. You know, they were just good people who helped other people who were injured, you know, in a certain aspect. So it, it really kind of helped me have a little bit of a, um, of a curiosity for it, a, a, um, that it's, that, um, these are things that we shouldn't have to shy away from, or probably the big one was a, a stigma. And I think that that's something that, that is across, you know, both, both cultures, the gun culture, the mental health culture, uh, stigma and, a, a, a lack of understanding uh, of the other side. And obviously this is what, what walk the talk is, is working on. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it just kind of helped normalize for me. Yeah. So <sighs> When I got into this and I started hanging around mental health professionals, I had this idea of institutions in my head. And I always thought of like one flew over the cuckoo's nest, um, you know, that stereotypical, probably, you know, mental institution visual. Uh, but it's interesting because if, if you talk to a lot of people in the firearms industry and, and we have a tendency to you know, for years we've blamed mental health, right? We blame mental health for mass shootings. And then there's always this reasoning that usually someone will spit out and it'll be something like, yeah, the problem is, is that we close down all these mental institutions where people could go get help or hospitals where they could stay. And then when I started hanging around people from like mental health America, they were like, no, we're glad these things are closed. Right. Which was kind of shocking to me. Um, now, I don't, I, I didn't live the experience. I don't know the experience, but this is kind of a question for both of you guys. Like, how do you feel about the term institution and, you know, what does that mean? And was it a good thing that those things went away? Right. Cause everyone has the, the, the visual in their head of like electroshock therapy and, you know, just curious. Yeah. That, that opens up a, a little bit of a political worm can, um, because the intent, I think, was sound, but the adverse effects on the back end were horrific. So when those institutions were closed, it was because they weren't effective. They were abusing people. They were doing all those things. And so from, from one, one perspective, you can say, yeah, that's a, that's a good thing. We're not, we're not just warehousing people anymore. And that's a it's a cottage industry. We, we warehouse people now in prisons and, you know, so, 
what ended up happening was, and various states have different waivers, but it's, it was done at a federal level, and it gets very complicated. I don't feel like going into that right now because it will, it will end up boring people. But the idea is that federally they said um, no more of these institutions of mental disease, IMD. And so what ended up happening was the they didn't quote-unquote shut them down. What they did is they stopped funding for through Medicaid and Medicare for people who would uh, essentially reside in these state-run hospitals uh, for months at a time. And what they did is they limited it to, um, you, could, you could have no more than uh, 16 beds, I think, something like that. If you have more than that, then you don't, you don't, get, uh, you don't get reimbursed by Medicaid. Or if you, if you stay longer than a certain period of time, then you don't get re- reimbursed by Medicaid or Medicare. Now, as most of us know, uh, the, the state insurance, if you will, Medicaid and Medicare, uh, Medicaid is for the indigent, Medicare is for the elderly, or for the uh, intellectually disabled adults. Those are the people who need the hospitalization or the residential care, uh, long-term effective residential treatment. Well, simple fact is that since the 60s, 70s, 80s even, treatment interventions have come a long, long way from just drugs and shock therapy. We know that our interventions work for in residential units. We know it with children. Um, getting insurance to pay is a different matter, and that's a different ball of wax we don't have to discuss right now. But, but the point is they work. You stick somebody in a hospital that has a really good program for several months. If they've got a trauma history, if they've got a psychotic disorder, we can help them. We know that. We can set them up for success, uh, get them employed, you know, become contributing members of society. Well, funding aside, we have a problem now where we can't we just we can't do that anymore because we're legally not allowed to. So instead, what they do is they push these these folks who who need the institutional help into communities, uh, and they're called community based living arrangements or something like that, CBLAs. And it's basically a house that has no more than six beds or whatever the the number is. And these guys and gals all live together, basically in the same type of setting. But oh no no no, they're in a house now. They're they're independently living, uh, and so as long as they're not in a hospital on state owned property, uh, we we circumvent the the federal regulation against it. So it's all just kind of a dog and pony show. There's a shell game going on where we still do warehouse people. It just looks different instead of one centralized facility on a big campus with doctors and nurses and pharmacists and mental health techs and, you know, uh, a centralized kitchen and 400 beds. Uh, we've got them disaggregated throughout the community and different companies who all rent homes and then put these guys and gals in these homes and they just shuffle them along with life, buy them groceries on a weekly basis, et cetera, et cetera. And, and some of them are very good and they're very effective and they move these people along and they, and they help them heal and others just sniff a honey pot and they don't do anything and they, cause they're getting paid and that's a travesty and and I have worked on many sides of, of those types of things so is it a good thing um, I don't think so not these days I think we need to reopen state institutions and you can call them institutions that's fine you can call them facilities hospitals agencies whatever um, but what we don't want is to institutionalize people and I'm going to hand that off to Jesse to explain because we've both worked with people who have been in so long that they become institutionalized yeah, and I think that that adds to the to the stigma, right? The uh, you know, Mike, as you mentioned, like one flew over the cuckoo's nest. 
and the fear uh, that I think, you know, Jake, you've, you guys have mentioned this on the podcast. Um, uh, the fear, I think, that, that holds people back of if I go see somebody, if I ask for help and the question ever gets asked, if I'm a gun owner, then, you know, immediately the, the authorities get called and that kind of thing. And uh, that's that's not my role to, to do that. So I think that's probably one of the biggest things that we need to dispel is fear and fear on both sides. Um, and I, I, I kind of want to qualify this that I don't, I don't say these things disparagingly or wagging my finger at anybody. Um, it just kind of is what the culture has been for so long. And, you know, when we get an understanding of, of what one side might be by way of like a, a skewed perspective, like media or, or entertainment, it doesn't do us, it doesn't do either side any good. So yeah, the institutionalization, um, yeah, that that's unfortunate in the in the sense that it's it's not so much what was uh, or, or that they got care or that there was an institution there. It's it's more of the delivery of it. It's more of the experience of it of how it was how it landed on them. And you know, Jake and I, we saw too many people that were just kind of stagnating and high centering and, and that kind of thing, and not really progressing. And um, but there is, I would agree with Jake that there's a significant improvement in in, in all these treatments and, and helping people, especially, uh, you know, chronically, um, you know, psych- psychosis and, and that kind of things and acute care that has definitely improved. Uh, but yeah, Mike, to your, your original point or your question, I think, um, I think that removing the stigma is going to be so powerful. It's going to be, and I think that comes from both sides talking to each other. That comes from, um, the mental health culture expanding their understanding of the gun culture. We, the mental health industry is focused on, there's a, there's a, there's a significant push for competency. We we call it a competency, a cultural competency, which is a good thing because we don't know who's going to walk through the door. We don't know what they're going to walk in with. So for us to be best equipped to help whatever it is that walks in the door, um, that's 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 our responsibility and um it's it's unfortunate that there's not there's very little focus on the on the gun culture and this is this is what jake has um has spoken about earlier or before and i think it's it's unfortunate at best it's tragic at worst and um and then on the other side there's a, a limited understanding of, of the mental health world and i think that by destigmatizing stigmatizing this stuff by normalizing it by, you know, I would say to, to firearm owners, to anybody in that, anybody in that culture that um, might think that there's a danger to this by asking for help, that um, it's weak or that there's a fundamental, or fundamentally broken, you know, a certain sense is like to, I tell my clients when they walk in, in the office or zoom, I admire the courage that it takes to put your hand up and say, I need help. And I think that that's something that we should be teaching our kids too, that it's okay to ask for help when you need it. And for us on the the clinical end of it, we need to be a safe landing zone. And we do that by educating ourselves, by informing ourselves, by being culturally competent to everybody who would walk in the door, including a gun owner. Yeah, and that's not to say that we should all be jacks of all trades either. I don't think you ever re- reach a, a 
place of expertise. Um, certainly, we all have our favorites, right? You know, so I, I lean more toward law enforcement, and because I grew up in a family full of cops, I'm going to understand a little bit better. I teach the police academy. Um, I don't necessarily understand um, inner city, um, you know, young black youth. Um, like Kevin Dixie is way more fluent in that than than I ever will be because I didn't I didn't live that experience. Um, but it doesn't mean that I don't go keep trying to learn as much as possible and be as diverse as possible as I can so that I don't get rocked when somebody comes in and says, hey, here's my story. And I go, ooh, I've never heard that before. Well, it doesn't matter whether I've heard it before or lived it or experienced it or seen it on TV or staffed it in a, a meeting. What matters is that I can reach you as a human being on the inside. And the way that we do that is we ask you what your interpretation of that story is, what you're bringing, what you want. Because we want to avoid blanket statements. I don't want to just sign up for a course in, um, you know, transgender cultural competence and then go up. Oh, I get everything there is to know about transgender people. Like no, 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 no. Everybody's still an individual, and they all experience life individually differently. And I think that's the exhortation that Jesse and I have now for clinicians: is go learn about gun culture, because. Well, as of 2017, 47% of Americans either lived with somebody who owned a gun or owned a gun themselves. And now in the last uh, six to eight months of 2020, we've seen 5 million roughly uh, new gun gun owners, which spikes that number considerably. So we're well over 50% of our clientele, prospectively, who would be in the firearms realm somewhere. We can't not know it. We can't ignore it. It's too dangerous to. Yeah, it's it's really interesting when you look at the firearms industry, how we have this, you know, we've portrayed ourselves or, or we are in many cases, right? Because there are a lot of military and first responders that gravitate towards the firearms community. It's a natural uh, it's a natural fit especially since they're always around firearms. Um, but that same kind of bravado and also fear to go get help because we were, it was beaten in our heads. Hey, you're going to lose your gun rights. If you say there's something wrong. Um, the irony is that we needed it the most. Um, there's so many people in the industry and I went through years, you know, I've been the third generation firearms industry professional and watching people take their own lives. And we kind of just, it's just becomes this elephant in the room and we don't want to talk about it. Um, we're getting to that point now where we realize that this has been hurting us. It's not helping us. So I think it's, it's pointed in the right direction. Um, but the, the, there's still a lot of issues that I think the industry has. And one of them is, is that we still don't understand. Like today I did a radio spot and, um, I could tell the two hosts kind of came from that old school, you know, fire pro to a background in terms of like, yeah, it's like these crazies out here, you know, like, yeah, you know, you want to stop these guys. And, you know, they had all the answers and I was just trying to make them see a, a different angle about it. And I used the example of, you know, you could take 10 people that have bipolar disorder and you can hand them a firearm and they may never do anything to themselves or anyone else their whole life. And I can come home and catch my wife in bed with my best friend. And in a moment of, you know, insanity for me, I, I could do something really stupid or like out of rage. Right. Um, Jesse, can you, how do you feel about that? Or how would you explain that being that you, you know, both sides, I'm sure you've been around somebody who's just said something totally 
bizarre or something that's incorrect when it comes to mental health? You know, what, how do you handle that? Well, I meet them where they're at. You know, that's kind of a, of a line that we would use in my, in my, in the clinical world is meet them where they're at. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to come at them. I wouldn't want to, you know, berate them or, or shame them or wag a finger at them. I'd, I'd want to know, like, tell me about your understanding of it. How do you see it? Mm-hmm. And I, I think that that's, that's the, that's the general principle. I think that we need more of is how do you see it? Where are you coming from? And um, that's the first step right there is, is, is provides a, a kind of an, an invitation to the conversation. I don't think anybody wants to be talked at, you know, or, or, or spoken to that we, we, a conversation. So uh, also uh, again, it's just a bit of a, of an understanding. I get it. I 100% get it. I get the the nervousness. I get the worry. I get the hesitation. I get the, the judgment. I get the stigma. Um, it's, 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 it's so pervasive and on, on again, on both sides. And I, I just kind of is what it is. And um, so I just, I, I, I would want to meet them where they're at. And I mean, if they're, if they're available to it, then they're available to it. And some people are, some people aren't. Um, but if, if we can, have more effective messaging if we can hear them rather than talk at them if we can hear where they're coming from tell me what your what your thoughts are and then if they're open then hopefully we can dispel some myths we can have that conversation let them know and i think that that's where uh, i mean i've lost track of how many conversations i've had where um it's a it's it's delicate don't get me wrong there's a there's kind of a you got to wait for the window to open but um being able to educate somebody inform them of both sides. You know, I've had people in, in, in my line of work who they have a pretty rigid view of the gun culture and vice versa. And I wait for my opportunity and I have that conversation and let them know. As a matter of fact, it's like, well, actually that's not accurate. Um, here's what is accurate. So take that opportunity just to, to inform and educate and um, align because I think that alignment is we all have, I think we all have the same goal in mind. We don't want to see any more people get hurt. Right. I I think for the most part, when, when people in the firearms industry, especially the old school staunch private from the cold dead hands guy, when he says like those crazies or that maniac with a gun, I I think somewhere in there, they're not talking about the person who just, you know, is a little broken and needs some help. You know, they're trying to go to that extreme as somebody who's evil and could, could, murder a bunch of children. Right. And I, and I do understand that. And I realize that they don't realize that they're adding to the stigma because nobody ever wants to be on that spectrum. Um, but that's how I deal with it because I'm always like, okay, this person just remind yourself, he's not talking about the person that's just dealing with some anxiety and needs to talk to somebody, you know, um, it's just, it's a shame that it's gotten this bad, but I mean, growing up like how I did in a nice Italian family in New Jersey, um, you know, I was used to, there was no such thing as mental health. You just, you had to suck it up or they give you something to worry about. You know, that's, that's how I kind of grew up. By the way, Um, I'll give you something to cry about. It was like clockwork, that answer. <laughs> I'm really worried. I'll give you something to worry about. Yeah, that was everything. That's not what we would call validating in our field. That is that is invalidating. And and when we talk about validating, and here's something for the for the audience, if you're if you're in the firearms community, you're not in the mental health community, and you, you don't know what this validation stuff is. Um, validate literally just means to make good, right? You go you go get your parking validated. It's like, yep, you were here. 
you know, we, you dined at my restaurant, you know, free, you don't have to pay for the garage or whatever. Um, it literally means to make, to make good. So what you're doing is you're, you're making the, you're validating the person's perspective. You're saying, yeah, to you, that makes sense. And, and if I were you, that would make sense to me too. It doesn't mean condoning. And I think a lot of people get, get a little twisted around when they hear something like that, or they hear, you know, a phrase like meditation, like, well, what is meditation? It's like, well, just being aware, like a practice of training yourself to be more aware. Um, that's, that's all it is. Um, so validation, when we validate, especially with children, what we're doing is we're saying what your experience is, is absolutely authentic. Now, it doesn't mean that it's good. It doesn't mean that you, it's righteous. It, you know, if you see some kid, you know, break a window with a rock just because he wants to be mean, you go, Hey, I, I totally get how that was really exciting for you. Cause it was, however, you're not allowed to break windows, go sit in your room. And then we're going to talk about how we're going to pay for the Johnson's window or whatever. Right. So, so you can have validation and not condone the behavior, right? So what we don't want those to shut people down and be like, that's your, your tears aren't worthwhile, or you're not sad, you're hungry, or you know, whatever it is, and then we're mislabeling, that would be very, very bad, too. Yeah, uh, it, well said. There's a, I, I describe it as a validation, essentially, as a, an acknowledgement that something exists, right, that it's, that it's there. So, you know, an emotion, when something, you know, if a, somebody's feeling something, that's what they feel. I, I, I can't tell them that it's wrong, because it exists where we can push back a little bit is, is the belief, you know, to kind of use the kid's example. Um, you know, a kid says, you know, he's angry because dad grounded him. He says, you know, cause he took the car and shouldn't have taken the car and he's upset. And he says, you know, my dad shouldn't ground me for taking the car without permission. And it's like, you know, you can validate the feeling and say, yeah, you're, you're upset. And, and at the same time, it's like, that's not really valid. You shouldn't have taken the car without permission. And that's the consequence to, what happens so to 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 separate those two that one does not you know condone the other it's really important because that validation is that first step of 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 connecting of of seeing something that somebody from their perspective i can see it from your perspective and then we can come in with accurate yeah and correct to, information. Uh, i guess put a little bow on this um you hear all the time like Ah, he's just struggling, and that's why he shot up the school. It's like, yeah, he was struggling, and he shot up the school, and that is completely wrong. So you can be struggling, and you don't have to act out of that pain or that anger. And there, and I, I talk about this in, in my podcast with some regularity, and we always cover it in supervision, which is uh, the, the difference between limbic brain, which is your feeling, your emotions, and then logic brain, which is your, your frontal lobe, uh, your executive functioning, your reason. Um, if you're acting in emotion, then your behaviors will often be something you regret because it's impulsive. It's not well thought through. It's not from the frontal lobe. So people who are in chronic distress, people who are suffering from mental illness, they're often emotionally dysregulated. They're out of control emotionally, and then their behaviors come out of that. They gamble too much. They cheat on their spouses. They um, they drive too fast. They drink too much. They use all sorts of substances. Those are those are regrettable decisions that later, when you know, when reason takes back over, you go, "Oh my gosh, I wish I hadn't have done that thing." Uh, the problem was you weren't thinking when you did it. You were emoting, and those two parts of the brain don't operate at the same time. They they go back and forth. So if you can be aware of where your emotional functioning is 
and notice it, you can tolerate it, which is where the validation comes in. You teach people how to work through their emotions and then return to reason and logic, then make a decision, not make a decision while you're emotional. Um, and, and really at its root, most mental illness is just a, a dysregulation of, of, a, of a brain activity somewhere. Uh, you hear all these things like, oh, I've got a... I've got a, a chemical imbalance. Like, hey, you're damn right you do. <laughs> now, what do we want to do about it? It doesn't always mean over-the-counter medication or prescribed medication. It could just be um, personal reflection, journaling, self-insight, awareness, you know, to gain one's own control over one's own brain chemistry. And I don't want to speak too broadly there. I mean, sometimes there's organic factors that, that, that come into play. But the idea is that it can be healed, right? It can it can be overcome. And we don't want to shortchange people's capacity for doing that by saying, oh, uh, crazy guy with a gun, mental illness. He's, he was he was sick once. He can never have his guns again. Well, that's, that's false. Like, that'd be like saying, well, you, you broke your arm. You can never work again. That's stupid. That's, that's a non-starter for me. We heal. You might have a fracture. You might, you might have a scar from the broken arm. But there's no reason you can't return to work. Get a fitness for duty exam. Go back to work. Same thing with mental, mental wellness. Yeah, we hear a lot in the, you know, well, I say we, but um, when when you're in the industry, you hear all kinds of things, right? A couple of common statements that you hear is, well, if someone wants to, wants to take their own life, um, they're going to do it anyways. And usually they say commit suicide, right? But that's what, <laughs> but uh, you hear that one a lot. Then you hear it, it's the go-to constantly when there is some tragedy, it's these damn drugs that they, they feed you. Right. It's it almost like that's what they need to, to feel better about the situation is if, if they wouldn't have taken those uh, antipsychotic meds that this this possibly wouldn't have happened. And I was always quick to say, like, let's not shame people that take medication, because I know plenty of people that take medication and they they have perfect lives and the medication helped them tremendously. Right. So it's important not to make people feel bad about that. But being that you guys are on both sides and you, you've seen it. How, how do you feel about these kind of topics or when people say these things? Again, I think it's, it's understandable. I don't, it doesn't mean that I agree with it, but it's understandable. And I, as I was saying before, I think that that's where, like I would validate, I would acknowledge. Yeah. I mean that from your perspective, that makes sense from your perspective. If I was in your shoes, that's probably how I would see it too. Um, but then it's not, entirely accurate. And as you mentioned, um, the, the medication or anybody getting any help or anything like that, the, it doesn't do us any good to paint with such a broad brush that this is, this is a cause of it, or this is, a, this is what it's re- responsibility lies here. There are so many factors that go into, into somebody, um, doing something horrific. And, um, you know, it's kind of, if I'm speaking to, you know, Jake and I, we both do a lot of work with law enforcement, military. Um, if I'm speaking to my military guys, um, this, this actually comes from uh, a client, a former client that was in the military and his, when his the kind of light went off for him, his analogy was if, if I'm out on a walk and we're 40 miles outside of, you know, wherever. And um, I think this guy was a medic. And he was like, if, if one of my guys hurt themselves on the walk, like when he sprained his ankle or something like that, he's like, I want to know about it. I want to know about it. Because if I don't know about it, and you're, if you're just humming along, you know, everything, everybody okay? And you know, he's like, I'm fine, I'm fine. We keep walking, we keep walking, we keep walking. And this thing is intended to, early on, 
it then gets worse. And then now it's a liability. And I was just, it was kind of went off for me. I was like, Oh my God, that's great. <laughs> what a great analogy. So uh, to quote somebody else, uh, David Snarch, he said, the best thing that you can do for the people who you love and care about is take care of yourself so that they don't have to. So this idea of, of um, self-care, taking care of yourself, the, I think that that is the most responsible thing that we can do that. Okay. So, uh, you know, why do we have firearms? Why do we have guns? But we, we have it to protect ourselves, to protect uh, the people who we love, um, which great. Please do that. Also, how are you? Are you good? And if, if, if you're struggling, you're a human being. We all, we all struggle. Please take care of yourself. But whatever that means, you know, mind, body, spirit, please take care of yourself. And if um, asking for help is, is something that has crossed your mind or if, if you're struggling with something that just can't get yourself out of, get help. Get some help. It's okay. And Jesse, so how, as a pro to a mental health clinician, when you see a mass shooting on television, like what, how do you see it? I mean, obviously you see it horribly, right? You're not going to be like, Oh, this is amazing. But you're going to, how do you see it? How do you view it? Because you, you play on both sides. Uh, well, it hurts my heart. Um, there's, I mean, I'll just be truthful. One of my first reactions is, okay, where are we going to go with this politically now? Right. Um, there's also, you know, the, the, Another thing that hurts my heart is every time it happens, there's more division, more division rather than more coming together. So that, that hurts. There's, you know, we get into camps. Um, and I think that we're seeing that right now. Everything is just so incredibly polarized. Um, so that's, that's what I see. I see. Uh, I mean, I think that one of the things that, and I, I, I think that this was, I've experienced it, you know, in my family growing up, um, but there was the, um, the anger and the, um, you know, the, the crazies, you know, as, as, as you guys mentioned. Um, and I mean, I see that, I get it. Um, but I think that that's, that further divides us. And again, this is not condoning or anything like that. It's the lack of curiosity about what could we do better? What could we do better? We go straight to legislation and I'm not going to make any statements on that one way or the other, but that's just the way we go rather than coming together in, in a discussion, in a um, um, culture, you know, the, how can we improve our culture? How can we improve culture at home, the families, um, our, our communities, uh, a preventative thing, you know, what, what can we do to prevent this? And it, it, it's not just that moment. It's not just that moment. And then, and then that's it. You know, there's just, the, he was humming along and he was doing great. And then all of a sudden it's the background where, where the, the family, where the, the growing up, the loving, supportive, uh, disciplined, um, you know, that, that kind of thing. And I think that that's where we got to start. And I think that for me, it, it, it kind of helps my resolve. Like, I'm okay, we got to do this. Like we, we can't have this happening. We can't have this happening and we just can't sit on our hands kind of go, Oh, well, you know, it's part of our, well, we've got to live with now. It's like, no, no, we, we absolutely don't have to just accept it as this is just the, the normal thing. Um, I, I kind of, I, I say this kind of jokingly, but uh, you know, I'll, I'll say like, you know, I've, I've got a vested interest in my clients getting better. Um, Cause I got two kids, man, you know, and if a client gets better and they go out into the world 
and they do well, then the world gets better. And it's a better world for my kids. So, I mean, in that kind of sense, like I do have a vested interest in my clients getting better. I mean, I think we all have a vested interest in uh, pain in our communities um, alleviating. So, yeah, when I see that kind of stuff, I'm just, it's discouraging, it's, it's saddening, but then at the same time, I'm like, all right, we, we got to do something. Yeah, it's, that's a great answer because there's really no perfect answer for that question. I feel like I got both of you guys uh, on this hot seat. I can ask you guys a bunch of questions that have really no answer. Like, why isn't there any female mass shooters? Like, <laughs> you're supposed to figure that out. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. It, yeah. It, I always, it's, like I said, I, I've, I've been around people um, that kind of swayed towards an anti-gun side or believed in restriction when these things pop up on the television and, you know, just kind of like, Oh God, everyone's emotional right now. And now I got to try to explain to them the difference between an AR and a, you know, just a regular handgun and why banning one would force the other one to be banned, but they can't grapple with that. You know, there's all these little educational pieces about firearms and that's exactly why we do what we do. Right. Um, But it just, you know, I never think about it from the the other side, uh, you know, from the mental health clinician side who, you know, you, you probably have so many questions about a particular individual. I mean, I know I'd be super curious, you know, as they release information and they only, they only tend to release like the really bad stuff, right? Like he had this going against him or, you know, his father died or, you know, they never really kind of say, well, there are some positives in here. And he still did this. <laughs> um, it's, it's yeah. you know, then it becomes a, a media spun thing, which becomes a shame because, you know, the media then has a month and a half of, of nonstop talking about this um, in a negative way. Well, and that has its own repercussions. It, it starts to look like it happens everywhere all the time. And we all know that, st- well, maybe we don't all know. Maybe I shouldn't assume that. But statistically speaking, mass shootings are infinitesimally small in the pantheon of not only shooting deaths, but certainly deaths overall, preventable deaths, right? Um, I, there's a lot to, there's a lot of ground to cover there that you, you brought up, Mike. And I think one thing that keeps jumping out at, at me is this, um, this instant gratification mentality that our society has, that there's a quick fix to stuff. And it's been driven by everything from the VCR and the microwave to Western medicine broadly that says, here, take this thing and it'll alleviate your symptoms. Here, you can, you know, you miss that thing, rewind it or skip the commercials. You don't want to watch those, just blow right through your, your uh, series. Um, now we got video on demand and everything's just getting faster and the internet's getting faster and bigger and internet connections are getting faster because they got to download more and, and it's just this never ending chase, right? So where, what does that do to our psyches? Well, what it does is it creates an expectation that when we see unsolvable problems like racism or, uh, murder that we go, well, just here's the answer. Just take away the guns. Here's the answer. Just reach into everybody's souls and, and tweak them so they know I'm no, no longer have unconscious biases. It's like, you can't do that. It's just, it's just not even, it's not even feasible. Cause so let's get back to what the real point is. Like we want people to stop being mean to each other. We want, we want to take away pain. Well, mm-hmm. that, that requires effort. And, and something you brought up along the way, Mike, you know, you say, I think we have all these questions about this, these people. 
I don't think so. My experience tells me that people would rather not know. They'd rather not ask those questions. Um, my own clinical community, I am repulsed more often than I'm proud when I hear people in continuing ed courses or coming out of school. We, we train students at Zephyr all the time, uh, you know, fledgling clinicians, interns. And they come out with a head full of ideas that the professors tell them from all institutions far and wide. And they say things like, I, I'm only here to get better at my, my chosen modality not to learn more about other modalities. You know, modality is a way of treating people, whether it's cognitive behavioral therapy or Jungian analytic psychology or existentialism. It's like, what? how could you be so narrow? And I think, I th I'm seeing this trickle out where people just get really comfortable in their zone and they don't actually want to know more. They're, they've stopped being curious to Jesse's point. And curiosity is going to heal a lot of this, mm -hmm. but curiosity requires vulnerability. Vulnerability comes with a risk of pain. Nobody wants more pain. And now all of a sudden we're circular. It's it's really frustrating. Sorry, I just got really animated. Oh, really <laughs> well, uh, you know, you, I've, we've kind of put the uh, clinician hat on you today. Uh, so, you know, you're a little past That's there. True. But to Jesse's point about um, doing something, right? That's, uh, that's a hashtag we wanted to start trending, Mike. It was, you know, hashtag doing something. Like you're literally going out and doing something. You're not... You're not whining about it. You're not bellyaching in the comment section. You're not picketing outside the courthouse with a sign. That's not doing anything. That's 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 fomenting chaos and it's it's satisfying maybe your angry cognitions, but it's not doing anything. So what do we do? Well, we do podcasts. We try to we try to push this stuff out into other people's ears who would not otherwise hear it unless maybe they took a session with us, right? Um, we, we write articles, we produce YouTube videos, we try to bring in interesting guests with different perspectives, um, because ultimately we do want our communities healed. If we wanted to, if we could, we would work ourselves out of a job. Mm -hmm. We would, we just, I know I can speak for him and for everybody I work with at Zephyr, we would be happier than pigs and shit if we never had to show up to work again because everybody was healthy and happy. We would happily go bag groceries or throw up drywall or anything besides this because this is a constant reminder that there's misery in society and when there's misery in society people hurt including our children who get bullied on the playground me when i have to overhear a conversation in the store about some guy you know bad mouthing his wife right in front of her i don't want that i don't want that and I will, I will do anything to stop it, including give away free information online. You know what I mean? Like, like take this stuff and use it, folks. Um, we don't care if we run ourselves out of a job. Conversely, I do think there's a great deal of clinicians in our, our profession who, would, who are afraid of being out of work, quite honestly. That makes sense. Hey, Jesse, a uh, quick question for you. Have you ever had any, I mean, I know there's certain HIPAA laws that you can't talk about stuff, but... How do you approach, I guess, someone that is talking about firearms that you may feel be in a state of crisis? Uh, well, I want to get, obviously, I want to get uh, information. I want to know what they're, what they're going through, what they're struggling with. Um, I want to know who their, their support person is. Uh, I mean, if it's really acute, then like, acute meaning like, you know, it's very white hot and it's likely to happen. Um, now there is there is a legal requirement that if there is imminent danger that I I'm required by law to do something, um, but dear God I I work I work my butt off before I ever get to that point because mm -hmm. um, I don't want that intervention I don't that intervention is last resort 100% last resort because the outcomes of that aren't aren't guaranteed to be good 
but I want to know who their support person is. I want to know what they got. What, what do they have to live for? What's, what would keep them from doing something impulsive and rash? Um, I, I try to expand a, we would call it a time horizon, you know, cause when we get really, when we're really struggling, oftentimes our time horizon can get very short. We, can, we don't see very too far out. We don't see possibilities. We don't see options. It's just, this is just it. And that's all, that's all that's there. So if I can help expand a time horizon um, and, emotions are emotions are waves man they 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 come and they go so if, if what we can do is just kind of ride this out a bit um get them back down you know jake was talking about the limbic system that's that emotional part of our brain and it's not logical it's it's impulsive and it's 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 um it's not rational so if we can get them out of that help bring them down sober them up a little bit you know emotionally sober to a point where they're they're making some better decisions you know, but more, more conscious decisions, conscientious decisions, uh, more thoughtful decisions. That's, that's what I would do in that, in that moment. Have either of you ever had a discussion about firearms with somebody, whether it just be a casual discussion or is this, is this kind of like one of those scenarios where they say, you know, most cops will never even draw their gun. Are you see, do you see it? Does it happen? Um, in session, if some, so there's a lot, listen to all the ifs. If I'm in session with somebody, because that's a that's a different conversation than if I'm just on the street, right? If I'm in session, if the person in front of me is suicidal, if they're suicidal to the point that I have to worry about their safety, or branch this off, if they have a child in the home who's suicidal, despondent teenager, something like that, then if it's to the point where I don't think they can maybe control the impulsive act, then I will ask about risks in the home. And it's not just firearms. It's, uh, you know, anything that can, that can cause death. Start with medications. And then I move to uh, car keys. And then I go to firearms. And then I ask about how the firearms are stored. And that's where the conversation sometimes can get uncomfortable. Because it's like, well, I got the gun in my nightstand okay, does your 14-year-old know about the gun? Yeah. You think that's wise right now? No. Okay, do you have a safe? Well, no. Okay, buy a safe. Yeah. You know, like, we have to have that conversation. Um, that has only happened twice, maybe. And it was both both times with, we're with kids. It may be slightly more than that. I know we have to cover district when I was working inpatient at a, a child and adolescent uh, residential treatment hospital here in town, discharge planning, we had to account for those things. And some of that discharge planning was checking the box and rubber stamping. And it was a little ridiculous. Cause it's like, you're talking about sharp objects in the home with somebody who is previously self-harming. It's like, what are you going to like wrap all the edges of the tables? <laughs> like, and you can cut yourself on anything. Um, but it was like, oh, put the knives away. And then that's a different conversation about what kind of message that sends and so forth. But um, so we had to check all those boxes. But the, I can tell you, like, to a man, like the firearms conversation was like, do you have guns? Were they locked up? Yes. Yes. Okay. You're good to go. Like there was not a competent conversation. Yeah. It's, it. um, I'm glad you mentioned the risk. That's it's, it's rare that these kind of things happen. They have, but we just, you know, we definitely want to super. Want to talk about that risk? You know, if there's a, if they're, if it's if it's an idea that's crossed their mind, I want to know how, you know. And if, if there's a, if there's a means to that, if there's an access to that, and if so, uh, how can we get it out of the way? How can we, 
get it out of their lives so that the the impulsivity coupled with the access you know don't end badly so yeah it's it's one of those things where um I guess my number one focus in those kind of instances, and Jake and I worked at the same, same kind of institutions, uh, was don't overreact, don't freak out, don't go, oh my God, and, and bubble wrap everything. But it's just, talk to me. Where are you at? Where, what, what's, what is going on? Where, how do you see things? Because most, I would say like 99% of the time, um, the curiosity goes so far. I want to sit in it with you, you know, um, there's a scene in, uh, uh, what was that movie? Robin Williams, where he dies, goes to heaven, what dreams may come. Yeah. There's that, that scene, I guess I'll spoiler alert. It's been out for a while, but, uh, <laughs> there's that, yeah, there's that 20, scene right at the end where his years. wife, she's, she's in hell and he's like, I'm just going to go be there with her. And he finally kind of settles into it and that's what brings her out of it. So it's kind of an analogy, but it, it really is. If you just. I get into it with them because most people it's uncomfortable. It's an uncomfortable topic. It's an uncomfortable idea and understandable. So it's been my experience that they just want someone to sit there with them in it. So they're not alone. Tell me about it. Every aspect to it. How would it, you know, all the details, all the gory details and they can get it off their chest and then they can go, okay, so I'm not, I'm not bad. I'm not evil. I'm not, I'm not, or, or, or whatever things may come up that would prevent them from, taking the step forward into a positive direction. We, we address that, we get that out and we go, okay, take a deep breath. Here are your options. Here are the things that you haven't been able to see because you know, the blinders essentially were kind of on and, and that's, that's where I come from. There. There's a, there's a guy we, we both got mentored by, um, both of you. In our life, Christian <laughs> here before. Yeah. Well, we went to the same, same school. Oh, there's, is that walking through anger? Yep. <laughs> walking through anger is a good book if you want to pick it up. Um, but, uh, it's yield theory. That's, that's his book on yield theory and yield theory is meeting people where they are. And the three tenets are listen, validate, explore options. And the first thing you have to do to listen is get out of your own way. And then, then to validate, you really have to get out of your own way. Cause you have to be where they are, not where you want them to be, where you think they should be, uh, where they could be one day. Like, <laughs> um, you got to meet them right where they are. And so in those moments, and I want to get back to the, the, the scaling issue of like, you know, how severe is it? If somebody is severely at risk of harming self or others and they're not getting moved, then it's intervention time. But that intervention is not taking your guns away. That intervention is a higher level of, criti- of, of critical care, right? It's, it's, not, it's not an environmental stop where we just try to take away the objects that could cause harm to other people. Like, if you're hell bent on harming yourself, to Mike, to Mike, to your point earlier, this is what what Dr. Matt Miller talked about. He's the director of the the Veterans Administration's suicide intervention program. He's like, I don't know that suicide's preventable, and that's an honest, raw, very revealing, very vulnerable statement. I don't know if it's preventable. We talk like it's preventable, like oh, we just sprinkle some 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 uh, some some intervention dust on somebody and they don't want to die anymore. It's like, well. Maybe not, maybe not. Um, and we have to honor that and not take it so personally if they don't listen to us. But while we're in that moment, if we're sitting with them, we got to believe that, that we can communicate that there's a better way 
and I'm at the limit of my capacity. Somebody else needs to help you now in a, in a, in a higher degree. Maybe that means a, a, an involuntary commitment to a hospital, which, by the way, in the state of Nevada has been deemed not uh, uh, legal grounds for removing firearms from somebody. It's, it's not a rights restriction. Um, an involuntary psychiatric commitment is just a temporary hold until you get out of your crisis. Crises are not supposed to go on in perpetuity. Um, so if we get to that point, we're not having a conversation about what lethal objects are in your home. We're, we're calling the ambulance and we're taking you to the hospital. And I could tell you on one hand how many times that happened. And it's less than all my five fingers. And I've been doing this for 12 years. Jesse, you've been doing it for a little longer. I don't know how many times you've had to get somebody to the hospital, you know, against their will. It's, it almost never happens. Yeah. Same. Yeah. The, um, it's funny because these anecdotal stories, um, when it comes to, you know, you go in there and you tell them that you, you're not feeling so good, but you own firearms and they pick up the bat phone and then they call somebody and you get whisked away and your gun rights are gone. Um, those, those are the type of, yeah. I mean, just to hear it from both you guys talking about, you know, it never even really comes to an emergency situation. No, and, and honestly, like this speaks to clinician competence too and, and uh, talent. I mean, Justin and I, I think we're both very, very good at what we do. Um, if we weren't, we probably wouldn't be mentoring other people into the profession. Um, we probably wouldn't have very many clients, you know. But um, we're not afraid to go there. I do, I do know some people who are afraid to deal with people in crises. And that's fine. That's not your bailiwick. But you may get somebody in there who's not necessarily in crisis, just sort of chronically suicidal on a low level. And then you're like, well, I don't know how to handle this because death scares me. It's like, you, you got to get better at your job. And so I can understand how some specifically some gun owners might be a little bit skittish about coming in and being judged for that because somebody simply doesn't know how to have a reasonable conversation. Listen, like if you're a human being walking the earth, you've thought about your own death. That is suicidal ideation. We've all discovered it. We've all felt it. Yeah, Jesse, any, any concern, um, you know, just, I talk to Jake all the time. So I direct this question to you, any concern, um, about the amount of firearms that are being sold right now in terms of what we'll see, how that does to the, uh, suicide by firearms number, uh, especially with the way that the, the world's going right now, right. With all the uncertainty and, you know, everyone's looking at it, especially Nevada is looking at an insane amount of evictions coming up. Um, I mean, do you think about that? Is there any preparation or? Yeah. I mean, it's, I, I know we try to, to not get too, I'll speak for myself on this topic. I try not to get too political, but it's, it's things are just thrust into the political world, you know, uh, whether they want to want to be or not. Um, okay. So on one hand, I'm like, great, great. More people protecting themselves, more people taking care of themselves. It's great. Get training. <laughs> I can't say that enough. You know, if, if you're somebody who's, who's listening to this and you recently bought a firearm, get trained. Uh, there, there is no substitute for that. Um, proper storage, lock them up or store them in a way that if you have kids, they're not going to get to them. Or God forbid, if you're somebody who's struggling, if you get them out of your house, you know, have somebody watch them for you. That's, you know, that's typically one of the, one of the ways that we go about doing that. It's like, just get them out of the house for a little while. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, if there's more in circulation, the likelihood I would, I not a statistician, but I would imagine that the likelihood goes up. Um, but I think that that's also where, you know, when we're looking at things uh, from the, 
lockdowns and all that kind of stuff. And that, this is my opinion is, and I've, and I've seen this with my families. Um, we've been doing this for like, what, six months now. Um, the, the impact, the negative impact of people not working, kids not going to school, that bothers me. That bothers me. And that's not just a political thing. That's I'm seeing these people who are coming to me and what they're struggling with is so much of the effects of the lockdown of not being able to work, worried about money, paying bills, any evictions or or where that is. Um, And then just the negative impact of just being indoors so much. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I do have concerns there. And I think that that's where we have to step it up. We have to, as clinicians, we have to talk about these things. We have to, um, you know, it may not be necessarily something that somebody volunteers, but we need to be asking about it. You know, like, what do you, what do you like to do? What are you doing in your freedom? And I think that, um, it's, again, I'm just sound like a, a broken record here, but, uh, having the dialogue, talking to them about it, normalizing it. Um, and then, you know, are there any concerns? Are there any worries? What can we do? Hmm. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, there are times when it's kind of like anything like your phone, how sometimes people won't call you or, you know, you'll have like a day where you're like this. Why isn't I have, I've gotten no text, done nothing, but walk the talk of Erica at, at one point I felt was kind of like stagnant. And then it was interesting because the, you know, the gun buying surge happened and then my phone was ringing off the hook all these different organizations and mental health professionals were like, yeah, we got to do something. It's, it's almost like there, it, it sparked this fear amongst uh, the clinician side of things or the people that worked in the organizations that, that dealt with mental health and suicide prevention. Um, and then I was busy, like, right? <laughs> we were busy, Jake, we, you know, uh, talking to all these different, you know, governor's challenge and mayor's challenge and everything like that. So it, it'll be interesting to see what happens. Uh, you know, the way I always look at it is these surges are opportunities, right? Um, the two A community, which second amendment community, uh, we pride ourselves on, on being some of the safest people on the planet. Um, we, we can educate and, and this is our window, um, to really kind of push and drive that point home, you know, that you need to take training, you need to, to be cognizant. And I love now that we're kind of talking about, you know, be cognizant of your, you know, be mindful of your mind, um, you know, the mental health side of thing and the suicide prevention thing. So, you know, there's a chance that obviously more guns out there could be more, more issues. Um, but there's a good chance that we could not, you know, I mean, as long as we keep, you know, hammering these points home. Rob Pink is here for Walk the Talk. I, that was uh, the Rob Pinkus. Yeah, I just <laughs> I just pulled that up because um, I was going to share the video um, when you were done there. I didn't I didn't mean for it to start, so that's that's my bad. But um, I thought it was like Candyman. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh my god! <laughs> uh, this is this is what you you know you get what you pay for. This is a free podcast. We're not professionals. But while we're talking about it, so the, the title of the video is called Alternatives to Removing Someone's Firearms from Their House. Um, so, you know, we got a bunch of firearms, right? And we got all this, this stuff and maybe you can't, um, maybe you can't take them because the laws in your, in your state won't let you. Um, Rob has a great video that he produced for the Mayor's Challenge and Governor's Challenge so we can get out to the, these, these new people who are now like, 
oh shoot, I don't own a gun, but my neighbor now does, and I didn't think he would ever own a gun, and now he's struggling. Um, that's a good video to watch. Um, it's a really good introduction video. Yeah, as a matter of fact, that video has definitely struck a chord with quite a few people on the governor's and mayor's challenge in Nevada for us. Um, it's on YouTube, yeah. It's just called Alternatives to Removing Someone's Firearms from Their House. It's on the Walk the Talk America YouTube channel. Uh, feel free to look it up. And we're going to keep posting videos up there, too, that are that are helpful. Um, by the way, my, my concern is actually, it's there's threefold. Negligent discharge. It's actually less suicide, really. Negligent discharges, um, chiefly by children, um, mm -hmm. and then to those children, child abuse, unreported, because in springtime, I'm going to spit some statistics, so just try to pay attention and not get bored. In springtime of 2020, there was a 40% drop across the board in the United States of reported child abuse. Now, child abuse and neglect is usually reported by mandated reporters, people who are compelled by law to report suspicion of abuse. Guess what happened in springtime? The schools closed. School teachers and staff are mandated reporters. Now we've reopened schools, but sorted, not really. Uh, in Nevada specifically, we saw a 46% reduction. Now, do we think that child abuse is happening half as often? No. Um, and what we do know from some other research is that the abuse cases that do manifest um, are worse because it built over time. So to Jesse's point about the the, the guy with the ankle injury who didn't tell anybody, uh, you become a liability. It, it builds over time. So then the third thing is domestic violence. That's what that's what really bothers me. I'm I'm really concerned about negligent discharges resulting in injuries, chiefly from children, children being abused and neglected and not getting reported, and then domestic violence, which we know is, is skyrocketed since the lockdowns, and you throw f f more firearms into the mix, what does that do, especially with people who haven't been trained? Yeah, absolutely. And we'll see where it goes. Yeah, I know. Uh, Hopefully there'll be more positive news than negative. And we talked about that the other day. Remember, why is everything so negative? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, there, and there's no discussion about anything, but um, listen, Jesse, I want to thank you for coming on. And I have a question for you. Um, and I'm actually curious about this one because I've never been able to ask it to a, a mental health clinician. Um, as a mental health professional, how do you tend to your mental health? Hmm. Uh, family time, mostly family time. Um, I like to, I'm a video game guy too. So any, anytime I can, you know, kids go down or whatever, it's like, I jump on that. Uh, cooking. I, I love to cook. I love to be in the kitchen. Um, being outside, I've got a, you know, one of the, one of the benefits I, I suppose to this whole thing was, uh, I was able to get the garden set up that I've always wanted. So I'm always out digging in the dirt when I get, when I get time. So yeah, being outside gardening, uh, spending time with my kids, my wife, uh, cooking and playing PlayStation. No, that's awesome. I have a follow up <laughs> actually, Jesse, do you do that intentionally? Like when you, you, you're like, Oh, I notice I'm starting to drag a little bit or get down or get anxious and then engage in those activities or do you just kind of do it as maintenance or like maintenance? Yeah, it's a, it's a good point. It's maintenance thing. And, um, a lot of, a lot of uh, walking and moving and, and exercise and that kind of thing too. I've got the gym in the garage. Um, it's, it's a maintenance thing. It's like, 
uh, like I'll say to clients, you know, like I kind of have a, a tend to have a bit of a prescription. It's like, okay, so like I said, mind, body, spirit, um, your body, like what are you putting in your body? Are you taking care of your body? Uh, spirit, you know, whatever that means, you know, that's an, that's a, an individual process, but are you taking care of it? Are you tending to that? Your, your relationship with God, the source creator, the universe, whatever that means. Um, but yeah, I, I, I say, okay, do you take a shower daily? You know, and for you know, some people struggle with that. It's like, take a shower, take a shower every day. But we don't take a shower and say, okay, I took care. I got that shower thing all squared away. I, I did that. And I'm good. You know, it's, it's a daily thing. So it's, it's a maintenance thing. Um, your spirit, your, your mind, uh, like you mentioned, like a meditation or something that, that, that decompresses you do that on a regular basis so that it doesn't have to be, you know, things don't, the, the pressure doesn't get so much that the, the valve explodes and we're trying to, trying to find something to, to, to get a relief doing things on a regular basis that are good for you, that are, that bring you a little bit of joy because right now it's, it's things are, are uniquely difficult for so many people that they, it, it, like you mentioned, intentionality, what do something with intention that is good for you, that brings that down. Um, and whatever that is. Yeah, that was good. Um, I was really hoping to get into diagnostics or something like that, but this is a, a better podcast, I think, than, than just doing that. Um, maybe we'll have you back and discuss more of the technical aspects of what counseling looks like and, um, how to keep people from being afraid. But one thing I did want to bring up is the, like you said, the intentional, performance of these ongoing things that bring you wellness and then i would add to notice like do you notice if you stop doing them you're like oh i got to get back into the whatever's missing like what happens when winter rolls around you don't have your garden for example yeah it's 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 adapting it's it's figuring things out it's um you know you, you know yourself better than anybody does and a lot of times it's people lose interest. You know, I mean, there's a little diagnosis, diagnostic stuff. There is a, um, depression. One of the, one of the traits of depression is, you know, I just don't feel the same way about certain things that brought me joy in my life anymore. And I just, for me, it's, well, let's, let's explore what, what other options out there may be things out there that, that would bring you some sort of satisfaction or joy that you're just not even aware of. And I think that that's where, you know, I'll throw things at people. Try this because I've, I've kind of built up a list along the way of people, what they've told me, like, Hey, this is really cool. I I find this enjoyable. I do this. And it's, it's, it's a little bit more than just kind of like, you know, your typical kind of a thing. Um, but keep looking, you know, it's just keep looking. Um, there's gotta be, there's, there, there is something out there to, to, to do, you know, especially now things are, are closed. So we're having to get a little bit more, we're having to get a little bit more creative. Um, but, it's been my experience. I, I tend to start with the home. Let's start with your home. Like, what does your home look like? What is your, what is your roof, uh, your roof, your, your room look like? What does, what does your garage look like? If you have one, get organized. I say, start there, get organized. Our internal world and our external worlds are, are connected. And if we have a disorganized internal world, we tend to have a disorganized external world, vice versa. So organize your external world. Even if you don't feel like doing it, even if you don't want to do it, do it anyway. And, taking care of, I mean, that, that's one thing that just immediately for most people is, is something that's very helpful because it, it's a sense of getting something done too. There's some traction and it's not trivial. You know, so it's like clean your room, you know, like a kind of a Jordan Peterson kind of a thing, clean your room, 
you know, like, like do that, clean your room, get your, your room organized because it doesn't have to be this monumental thing where, you know, if my, if I, if I'm not happy, I have to change this. I have to shift this, this, the huge gravitational pull of something. It's no, we don't, it's, it's a one degree at a time. It's that the, the big tanker ship, right? The, you know, if you want to turn that thing around, it's, it's going to take a little while and that's okay. Let's start with one thing. What's one thing that you can do that's good for yourself today, even if it seems trivial, let's, let's do that. Let's get you a W let's for the day. Let's get something knocked out. And then, Hey, you know what? If you feel good and you're feeling motivated, do something else. Do you, do you ever ask people to stop doing things that used to bring them joy, but now they don't anymore? I would say in a sense, I would, it would, I would put it more, put the expectations somewhere else, or if it's not bringing you joy, that's okay. Move over to something else because that, the, the sadness there is the, is, is a, the link between disappointment and sadness. I want something and I'm not getting it. That bums me out. Well, then let's, let's put that aside. If, if you had a hobby and you're not really, it doesn't jazz you as much as it did before. Okay. Put that expectation aside and let's look for something else. Mm-hmm. So they don't necessarily have to abandon it altogether, but maybe just look elsewhere for something fulfilling and you can come back to it or sure. that kind of thing. Yeah, huh. Absolutely. Cool. I'd never considered that before until you mentioned that thing about, you know, losing interest or pleasure. So, well, how are we doing? Are we done? Is that good? Clunky ending? Yeah. You want to make it clunky? Guys? Hey, guys? Okay, bye. Are we done? Okay, bye. We, oh, you're not pressing the button. You're on mute. No, unmute yourself. <laughs> Wrong button. Wrong. I, I can still see you. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. You guys should plug Zephyr, though, huh? Oh, I did in the beginning. That's good, right? Do you have anything to say about Zephyr, Jesse? Uh, it, it's great. The uh, I don't know, questionable owner, but uh, it's yeah, great outfit. Lindsay's not. Well, Lindsay's great. Oh, good. Oh, 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 you meant me. Well, that <laughs> <is> rude. <laughs> I appreciate uh, you guys having me on. I do. Well, no, thank you for coming on, man. Uh, I think it's good uh, to have a different perspective from you know, not just Jake's perspective as a mental clinician to come on as pro two a. So, you know, I appreciate you coming on and being honest and, and talking about it. And, uh, you know, we'll definitely bring you back on. I, I would appreciate that. And, and Micah, thank you for doing what you do, man. It, I am, I'm, I'm grateful for everything you've done. Yeah. Thank you for that. You know, if you guys want to reach out to us, uh, if you're listening and you have questions, something's piqued your interest. Um, what's the email, Michael? Yeah, so you could send it to info at WTTA.org or admin at WTTA.org or if, if it's just me, Michael at WTTA.org. Yeah, and, and I'll offer mine too, info at ZephyrWellness.org. Uh, and um, I think what we'd like to do is start addressing some of these listener questions. Uh, maybe maybe we can have a podcast about that too because I think a lot of what people write into us is worth merit and then if they happen to be clinical we'll bring Jesse back and we can have an, a really cool robust discussion that was uh, generated by the, the listening audience I think that'd be really cool so as you're spreading this and, um, and sharing it with people invite them to interact with us because it is through your feedback that we get better as an organization we get better as a as a podcasting group and um and then we can help more people so we'd like to be responsive in that effect all right 
that does it for us. We will uh, clunkily see you guys in the next episode. Thanks again for downloading our content. As always, we wish you all great mental wellness. Bye.